as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The mystery of that, the depth of that, um, we, we hardly can understand, and yet we receive it and we believe it. And we confess that faith. And at the core of that truth is the fact that God is love. How can God be love if they're not persons to love? And so at your essence, you just exist as love. And that love has spilled into us in creation and in redemption, Lord. And we bless you and we thank you for that love today. We pray now that you would make your love manifest to us through your spoken word and your preached word, Lord, as we open up the scriptures that we might encounter you. We pray it in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, last week, if you were not here, we began to consider what the Apostle Paul has to say about spiritual warfare from Ephesians chapter 6. Sometimes when we begin to pay attention to spiritual warfare, to talk about it, to, to preach about it, it can actually intensify. And maybe you've noticed that in your own life. Maybe there were some circumstances this past week that, that came at you. Uh, maybe there was a sense of resistance in some area of life or struggle that wasn't there before. Maybe you began to put on that set of glasses and notice this in your workplace or, or your school or your family. As we noted last week, thinking about spiritual warfare is a lot like using a set of 3D glasses to see the world. You look a little funny. People might look at you and think, that's strange that you look at the world like that, and yet it actually helps you to see with clarity what's really going on. If we ignore this spiritual dimension that's happening, we're only going to see in two dimensions, and we're not really going to be able to make sense of a lot of what happens around us. So the Apostle Paul in chapter 6, verse 11, and if you have your scriptures with you, go ahead and turn there. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11. Uh, Paul encourages us to stand against the schemes of the devil. That's the phrase he used, the schemes of the devil. And I think that really captures it. In Greek, it reads the, the methods, the methodia of the diabolos. And so I, I've rendered this the diabolical methodology. The diabolical methodology, because he, he has a method to it. He has a scheming. He comes at us in so many different ways. I was thinking about um, Terminator 2. Reach way back in your mind. Uh, probably more to guys, but maybe some, some gals saw it as well. Terminator 2, you have Arnold Schwarzenegger. He, he's the good Terminator, right? But then you have this other bad Terminator. His name was T-1000, but he was like liquid metal. You remember that guy? I remember watching that movie and being so frustrated because you couldn't stop him. He would keep taking all these different forms and you'd shoot him or blow him up and he'd just like mold back together. Well, that feels like what we're up against sometimes in spiritual warfare because you might resist evil in one area of your life and say, cool, got it figured out, resisted it. And then all of a sudden he morphs over here and he shows up in another area. It's also helpful to know that, that Satan is not our only enemy. You also have the world and our own sinful flesh. And so that's the, the classic three enemies that Christians fight against are the world, the flesh, and the devil. But the problem is Satan takes the world and he takes our own sinful flesh and he, and he messes with them. He gets involved in them. He manipulates them against us. 
And then we also learn from Ephesians 6 verse 12 that there are these other powers that are somehow aligned with Satan, which Paul will call the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers, and the spiritual forces of evil. So the devil has all of these resources at his disposal. He has the other enemies. He has these spiritual powers. And he has this diabolical methodology to use all of these things against us. And the hard part is, we don't know how to figure it out, really. He's constantly outmaneuvering us. And so the conclusion that we're left with, if we take this seriously, is that we're no match for this. We are no match for this. I think Martin Luther came to that conclusion. I think he understood that he was no match for this. And that's what led him to write in his famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress, did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. Do you ever feel like that? That your striving in some area of life actually feels like losing. Maybe it's a sinful pattern that you struggled against. You keep trying to get victory over it, but you find yourself falling into it again and again. And so you repent and you, and you try to have faith and you have accountability and you pray and then you lose again. You slip into it again. Maybe for some of us, it's not a sin pattern like that, but it's a, a challenging circumstance that keeps repeating itself. It gets better for a bit. We feel uplifted. We get some perspective. And then all of a sudden, we're back down on the mat again. It flips on us. Do you ever feel like your striving is losing? Do you feel like maybe in, in marriage, maybe there's something in family, maybe it's workplace, but some area of life where you just can't seem to get past the resistance. Now, I'm not saying that Satan is directly causing all of these things, but we do face this web of resistance, the world, the flesh, and the devil and the intelligence, I think, that the spiritual force of evil has, this diabolical methodology is always involved, weaving these things, using them against us in a way we can't see. So yes to Martin Luther. Yes, our striving is losing if we confide in our own strength. But we don't confide in our own strength, do we? And that's how Paul starts the section, Ephesians 6, verse 10. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Before he says anything about spiritual powers, he says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Be strong in, in ourselves, in our best efforts, in our intelligence, in our Bible knowledge. No, in the Lord. And then he goes on from there and he tells us to stand repeatedly stand. That's the command at the heart of spiritual warfare. And, and what do we need to understand to understand why we're called to stand? Is that Jesus has won the victory. That's what we stand on. Not our intelligence, not our passion, but that Jesus through the cross has defeated Satan. And so we're not told to really attack in this passage. We're told to stand and resist because the battle is won because Satan has been defeated by Christ. He's still active in the sovereignty of God. He still has power. He's still doing some things, but his days are numbered. He's a defeated foe. So we don't go out in our own strength thinking we're going to conquer or resist or outmaneuver Satan because we won't. But we stand in this victory of the cross. 
So be strong, stand. But Paul is going to explain in this wonderful metaphor how it is we are to do that. Look at verse 11. He writes, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, against the diabolical methodology. Paul shows us a great gift. Not only do we not have to be strong enough, because we're not, we don't need to be smart enough. We don't need to figure out our enemy. We don't really need to know that much about his methods. Paul simply says, put on the armor of God. That's what will allow you to stand. Anything that we need to know about the methods is going to be shown to us in the armor. The armor is enough. Focus on the armor, not on the enemy. Because if you get the armor in place, you'll be okay no matter what kind of thing comes against you. I think sometimes, and I believe C.S. Lewis points this out, there's kind of two equal and opposite errors when it comes to spiritual warfare. One is to ignore it. And that's what much of our world does. And even some Christians just say, ah, that's weird. We're going to ignore it. It's real. We need to pay attention to it. But the other one is to obsess about it and to start looking for a demon under every rock and to kind of get your mind way into these things. We actually don't need to do that either. We just need to focus on the armor, focus on the truth, focus on what God has given us. So where is Paul getting this imagery of armor? Well, two places. First is from the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah 59, verse 17 and following, God is described as the warrior himself who goes out and fights evil and he puts armor on. Listen to the passage. It's very similar to what we meet in Ephesians 6. Isaiah writes, he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. And then earlier in Isaiah chapter 11, this is the Messiah being described. Righteousness shall be the belt around his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. And so when Paul says the armor of God, he he means God's armor, the, the armor that God himself wears and that we can wear as well as a gift from him. But the second source of this imagery was a Roman soldier. Paul would have been quite familiar with Roman soldiers. They were everywhere. They were a fixture of the empire. We know that as he's writing this letter of Ephesians, he's in jail. And so many have wondered that maybe he was chained to a Roman soldier or maybe there was ones walking around. And so he had this illustration right in front of him. And so those are these two sources where he brings together this imagery of armor. And so I want to walk through five pieces of the armor and try to get inside the mind of the Apostle Paul and say, what is he telling us about how we stand and resist? We're going to focus more on the armor, what you could call the defensive pieces. Um, I'm not going to look at the sword of the spirit or prayer. That's uh, next week. So verse 14, the first piece is the belt of truth. The belt of truth. That's what most modern translations say. But if you have an older translation like the KJV or a literal translation like the NASB, um, you'll, you'll read this, having girded your loins with truth. Now that's not a phrase that we use very often, uh, but it actually fills out the picture more of what could Paul be thinking about here. Um, Normal attire for men back in that time, including soldiers, was a long tunic that covered your legs. But if you needed to do manual labor or you needed to go into battle, you don't want a bunch of fabric hanging around your legs. It will just get in the way. So to gird one's loins was to take that extra fabric to wrap it around your waist so that your legs would be free. Now, I happen to have a long robe on this morning, don't I? 
but rather than manually illustrating. I did that for a few people before the service. Um, yeah, it was awesome. Bucket list, yeah. Uh, I actually have a slide for you that will do a lot better job. This is how you gird up your loins, men in particular. You pull it up, you wrap it around, and you're ready to fight. I found that on the internet. I was thrilled with it. <laughs> so girding up your loins, that was one of the first things you did before battle. It was a way to get prepared so that you could move freely, face your enemy, have the agility and mobility. So what does Paul mean then by gird up your loins with truth? Well, it, it probably means a couple of things. In one sense, it could mean we, we wrap the truth around ourselves, right? We, we pull it up and we wrap it around ourselves. And that's where the belt idea comes from. So that, that makes sense that we need to immerse ourselves, surround ourselves, wrap ourselves in the truth. But there's also a sense with the girding of the loins of making ourselves ready with the truth. When we understand, and I think that's what this teaches us, is that how is the enemy often going to come at us? He's going to lie. He's the father of lies. That's his native tongue. He's going to continue to manipulate and to deceive. And so the way we prepare to meet him is that we wrap ourselves, we get ready with the truth. And there's a wonderful simplicity about this because we don't actually have to study the playbook of the evil one to know what kind of lie he's going to throw at us next. It's too long. It's too complex. It's always changing forms. But if we know the truth and we walk in the truth, then we'll know when a lie is being used against us. I've heard that people who study and fight um, counterfeit bills, counterfeit money, that they don't actually study the counterfeit bills. What they study is the original so that when they see a counterfeit, they'll be able to recognize it and call it out. When we gird up our loins with truth, we're ready to face the lies that inevitably come at us from so many different directions. So what does this look like? It's not very hard to figure out. We immerse ourselves in scripture. That's our, our main source of revealed truth. We speak it to each other. And Paul said that earlier in his letter about speaking the truth in love, that we're constantly speaking. And if you're with a friend and, and they're saying something and they're going down a thought pattern and, and you, you want to gently encourage them and speak the truth to them, bring them back to that. And we want to also preach it, teach it, say it to ourselves. You're facing some hard situation, just stop, slow down, and, and literally go through and say, what's actually true about this situation? Bringing in that third dimension, bringing in God and his spirit and who you really are in him. So we gird our loins with truth. That's where it starts. The second piece of armor is the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate was made of metal and it protected the vital organs. Think today about a bulletproof vest. It's the same idea. If someone really wants to hurt you, they're going to go for one of two places, your chest or your head. And we'll talk about head in a minute. So the breastplate, a breastplate protected this, and, and Paul's going to envision the breastplate as righteousness. What's he trying to tell us? Well, righteousness, very common word in the Bible, old and new, and has a range of meanings. So how might Paul mean it here? Some think that he's talking about us living righteously, living in a way that pleases God. And that, and that fits with some of what we've seen in Ephesians thus far. So in chapter four, uh, Paul will exhort us to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. 
There's truth to that. Living righteously helps us avoid spiritual evil. Because if we start dabbling with sin, if we go down that path, we're going to give the evil one all of this material of our flesh and of the influences of the world to use against us. So live righteously and you'll be protected. It'll be like a breastplate. There's truth to that. The problem is we can't live righteously enough. I mean, that's definitely true before we're Christians, but even after we come to faith, we still struggle in our flesh with righteousness. So if it's up to us to live righteously in order to protect ourselves, then anytime we stumble, our breastplate comes down and our vital organs are exposed. So I think there's a different aspect of righteousness that Paul may have in mind. I think it's the kind that he talks about in Romans. It's the righteousness that comes by faith apart from the law. That righteousness which is at the heart of his gospel. Not only are we forgiven through faith in Christ, but we also are counted as righteous in God's sight. Christ lived this righteous life. Through faith, we get credit for it. Or to put it in a different way, Christ had the breastplate of righteousness. It never came down, but now in faith, we get to wear his breastplate. The good thing about this kind of righteousness is that it's much, much more secure. This is the kind that we want as our armor. It doesn't leave us exposed because it's not dependent on our performance. Again, when we um, learn about Satan, one of the things that we see in his diabolical methodology is accusation. He loves to accuse. Revelation 12, he's called the accuser of the brethren. He accuses us in so many different ways. Sometimes it's a, a real sin that we've committed that he keeps accusing us and accusing us and accusing us, condemning us. Other times it's, it's false guilt, but he uses it over us. His goal is to just drive a wedge, separate us from the knowledge of God's love, separate us from believing that we are loved, that we're included, that we're accepted as his children. So taking on Christ's righteousness protects us from this. It protects those vital organs of love. It says, I have been declared by no effort of my own. I've been declared in right relationship with God, not based on my performance. And I don't lose it when I sin. I still have sin in my life, but there's no condemnation. The Father is lovingly disciplining me. He's purifying me. He's sanctifying me. So this is the protection we have against accusation the breastplate of righteousness. You have to put it on. You have to put it on moment by moment because different types of accusations are going to fly at us. We need this piece of armor. Third piece of armor, shoes of the gospel of peace. The shoes of the gospel of peace. So Romans were smart about footwear and some suggest that part of their military dominance was that they paid attention to what they wore on their feet. They knew for an army to be successful, whether marching or actually fighting, they had to have good footwear. They had to protect their feet. They had to be able to stand and resist. So if we're going to be able to do the same in the spiritual realm, Paul says we have to have something to stand on. We have to take care of our feet, as it were. And he tells us that our, our spiritual footwear is the gospel of peace, the readiness of the gospel of peace. Well, what does that mean? Well, first, I think it means we have peace with God. Again, that's right at the heart of the gospel. 
We're no longer enemies of his. We have peace with him through the blood of Jesus on the cross. Satan wants us um, to turn us against God or convince us that God is against us. And we stand in that truth that says, no, we, we have peace with God because of the gospel. You can't drive the wedge. So peace with God, I also think it refers to the peace of God. His own peace that he gives us as we go out in the world, as we face hardships, we can do so without fear and anxiety, but with this confidence and peace that comes not from within ourselves, but from above as a gift. It's the peace that Jesus spoke about when he said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. I was getting a sip of water out there, and that verse is written right above that water fountain. As we face the struggles of the world, the flesh, the devil, it's not going to be easy. We're going to be in a battle until the day we die, and we need to accept that. It's never going to let up. But we can have this sense of well-being, security, of joy in the midst of the strife, in the midst of the chaos. That's the peace of the gospel. That's what we stand in and we stand on. So we have peace with God. We have peace of God. Those things help us resist, but I think there's something else. You know, a lot of the armor is defensive, as I've been suggesting. But I think the shoes is also a place that's a little bit more offensive. It, it helps us when we're attacked, but it, we also use those shoes to advance. I think Paul may have another scripture from Isaiah in mind here. In chapter 52, verse 7 where he says, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who bring good news, gospel, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. So part of the armor is that we actually go forth in the shoes of the gospel and we proclaim it. We proclaim that God is making peace with the world through the cross of Jesus. It's not exactly an attack because the battle's already been won. Rather, it's spreading the news of the victory. And that's what's happening in Isaiah 52. This guy is, is coming across the mountains and he's saying, listen, your, your God reigns and that's what's happened in Jesus and in the gospel and now as the church, that's what we do. We, we go forth in the, the gospel shoes of peace and we say, our God reigns. Well, how and, and who? Well, he reigns through Jesus Christ on the cross by the resurrection. He reigns. Those are our footwear, friends. We stand in it. We advance with it. It's the peace of the gospel. Fourth piece of armor, the shield of faith. Shield of faith. Paul writes this in verse 16. In all circumstances take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. So a Roman shield was very large so it could provide maximum protection. Not just these tiny little things but a big, large shield to protect them. That's what Paul has in mind here. It's made of wood, leather, and metal. The leather part was key because the leather could be soaked in water so that when they went out on the battlefield, they could be protected from one of the deadliest weapons being used, which was when an enemy took an arrow, dipped it in pitch, lit it on fire, and shot it at you. 
Paul is telling us that faith is the shield that's, that's large enough to cover us, all of us, but also designs especially to extinguish the flaming arrows that Satan fires at us. So much of our struggle is around faith. It takes faith to even use the first three pieces of armor to believe the truth, to receive the righteousness, to stand in the gospel of peace. So faith is critical. There's so many darts flying at us all day long. So many messages, so many lies, so many temptations to disbelieve, to despair, so many temptations to just go numb, to just say, I I don't care anymore. Faith puts those arrows out protects all of us. It protects our loins, our chest, our feet. But here's the thing. We struggle to have faith. Do we not? One of the common um, rebukes in this path of discipleship with Jesus is, oh, you of little faith. None of us has as much as we'd like to have or, or has it in all the circumstances that we might. I mean, there's probably an area or two of your life where you're good, you're having strong faith. And then over here, there's an area where you're really not. Sometimes we're aware of a lack of faith and other times we don't even see it as that. This happened to me recently, a friend, I was talking to him about something I was dealing with and he, um, he, he helped me see that there was a, a really large lack of faith. He, he didn't lead me in this way in an accusatory thing. Sometimes we can say, well, this is because of your lack of faith. It wasn't that kind of thing. It was very gentle and the Holy Spirit opened my eyes to see this, this lack of faith going on. And what I realized through that process is I had been taking so many flaming arrows right into myself because I wasn't trusting God in that area. In my case, as it often is, maybe some of you can relate, it was about control. There were some circumstances in my life I really wanted to be the one in control of. And what I came to see was the reason I got to that place was because I was disappointed with God for what I had perceived that he had, he had not done something in the past. And so what, what do we do when that happens? Well, we say, thanks God, I'll take it from here. I got control of this area of my life. Now, I wasn't sounding that out. I didn't realize I was doing that. But through this conversation, I began to see, wow, there's a huge lack of faith. What do we do when we have a lack of faith? We confess it. And my friend helped walk me through that. He led me through a confession. He prayed uh, absolution over me and I felt cleansed and free. I, I mean, a lack of faith is a sin and I needed to confess it and be cleansed of it. And then he prayed that God would fill me with faith and that has to happen because faith is a gift. The shield is a gift. You can't conjure it up. We have to be given it by God. Our part is that we can detect it. We can say, okay, I confess it and then we can pray that God would give it to us. Well, when that happened, it's like I picked back up the shield. And I, I could tell, I could see, I could sense the, the same types of arrows of anxiety or fear or control, whatever those were, were, they were still coming at me, but they weren't affecting me in the same way because I'd picked back up the shield of faith. Now, part of this in my story was that it was someone else who helped lead me to this. And I think that's key for the shield of faith. On the Roman battlefield, they would take their shields and when they would line up against an enemy, they would have a, a row up here of a holding their shields and then the next row would come over and they would put the shields over the top and they were impenetrable to an enemy when they did that. 
And I think something like that is true for the community of faith. We, we cover each other. And sometimes we might let our shield down and our friends, our community, those brothers and sisters in Christ, we help say, no, pick the shield back up and we'll cover you. We'll use our faith to help cover you until you can get yours back up. So this isn't something we can do alone. You need to be talking about the hard things in your life with Christian friends and you need to be open to them saying, hey, have you considered there's a lack of faith here? Not in an accusatory way, but allowing you to gently pick back up that shield as God restores faith. Fifth and final piece of armor for today, the helmet of salvation. Again, two most essential parts of our body to protect, chest, head vital organs, and our mind. A Roman helmet was made of bronze, very strong, very heavy. Inside it was lined with, with felt or a sponge, something to make it more comfortable. And Paul says that the Christian's helmet is salvation. Righteousness protects our vital organs. Salvation protects our head. So if righteousness is protecting us against those accusations, that, that method of the devil... What might salvation be protecting us from? Paul doesn't tell us exactly, but as I reflected on this, I think it's death. I think it's death. Because death is the devil's most powerful weapon. It's what he tricked us into in the garden. It's the wages that our sin pays out. It is the great enemy of human beings. Now we know that it is God, not Satan, who is sovereign over life and death, but Satan uses death all the time. He uses the fear of death. He puts death-like thoughts in our minds. He's constantly doing something that's dehumanizing, that's uh, death-wielding in all sorts of ways in humanity. He can work us up into a frenzy and an anxiety uh, through death. A lot of people have said um, that really all fear, all anxiety at its root is this fear of death. We know that the enemy wants to steal and to kill and to destroy life. He's bent on death. He uses it to enslave us. So that's the enemy. But the salvation of God, which comes through Christ, protects us from death and it delivers us from the fear of death. That's what the writer of the Hebrews, chapter two, is working out. He says that through death, his own death, Jesus might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That's what our salvation does. It is the, the great news, the great act that Jesus died the death that we deserved so that we don't have to die, but no resurrection life instead. Through his own death, he saves us from death. And so the great enemy of Satan, the great thing he wants to wield at us, it doesn't work anymore when we put on the helmet of salvation. He can't threaten death as a punishment for sins. We're no, longer the we're no longer recipients of the wages of sin, but now the gift of God, which is eternal life. And he can't use the fear of death. When he throws that prospect of death at us, whether it's some frightening thing in our life, whether it's a, an illness that we have, that a loved one has, we can throw back at him and say, I am the resurrection and the life Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet will he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. 
Friends, nowhere is the Christian message of salvation more powerfully proclaimed and felt than in the face of death. Have you noticed that at funerals today, we're sanitizing them? That we can't, we can't quite handle um, the death part, the funeral part, the burial part. We call them celebration of life. And that's okay. It's a celebration of life. But it's also staring into the face of death with the power of the gospel. We should not be afraid of funerals. I would rather preach a funeral than a wedding because there the gospel comes alive. So that's our salvation. That's the helmet we put on. It, it guards our thoughts. It, it covers the place where we process information and interact with the world and form our conclusions. The helmet is there so that whatever comes at us, we can say, my life is hidden with God in Christ. I'm untouchable by death. You can't even use that against me anymore. What weapon do you have left? Because even if I die, I live. A resurrected body awaits me. So yes, you kill me, you send me faster and further into the great gift of life. That is a powerful piece of armor. Don't leave home without it. So friends, we have a very devious, a very manipulative foe. We don't actually uh, need to know all that much about his methodology. We don't have to predict his actions or, or chart it out or see where he's going to attack next. God has given us all that we need to resist. We have the armor of God. Girding our loins with the truth, putting on the breastplate of righteousness, getting our feet ready with the gospel of peace, taking up the shield of faith individually and as a community and putting on the helmet of salvation. Let's pray. Father, we need to be rightfully clothed and protected as we step out into life. And we look at all these things and we acknowledge that they are um, gifts of you and that we need your help to put them on daily, hourly, moment by moment to walk in the strength and protection that you provide. And so I pray for myself and I pray for my sisters and my brothers that you would show us very practically, very specifically in our lives, what situations we need to put on this armor. Help us, Lord, by the movement and working of your spirit. Help us. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.